There are many famous characters, personages of, of Christmas. Uh, many of their stories and their, their faces have become immortalized in our culture through songs. Songs perhaps you heard at Christmas concerts or on the radio or Christmas specials in church, DVDs, whatever. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to test your knowledge of Christmas music and Christmas personages. So we're going to play a little bit of Name That Tune. And the way that's going to work is full participation, okay? I am going to hum a song, and then you are going to shout out the title. We normally don't recommend shouting in church. We're not of the charismatic vein. But this morning, we want to invite you to shout it out. And so, again, I know it's partially dependent on my ability to hum properly, which is somewhat suspect right there. But I'm going to, so you understand what we're doing. I'm going to hum a song. As soon as you figure it out, shout out the title, and we should all be okay, all right? Ready? Here we go. First one. You ready? You're going to beat the guy next to you. All right, here we go. Bum, 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 bum. No, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> little drummer boy. All right. Somebody, one person in here knows little drummer boy. All right, here we go. All right, y'all. It's number number two. Let's try this one. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, we three kings of Orient. All right. They probably weren't three. They probably weren't kings. And they probably weren't from the Orient. But other than that, it's a great theological song. Okay. How about this one? And they probably weren't at Christmas time either. But that's we won't get into that one. All right. How about this? Um, bum, 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 bum. Angels we have heard on high. Yeah, angels are a part of the Christmas story, right? How about this one? We're going to go a little bit secular on you. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Oh, yes, right, right. Now, this one's a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of a challenge for me to hum it, as it were. So let's see what we can do with this one. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum. Yeah, the Grinch. Yeah, kind of. I don't know how we got Grinch out of that, right? But uh, we got it. All right. He's my boy. That's how we did it. Okay. All right. And the fame, the, the most, the classic of all. Um, bum, 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 Yeah, Grandma got ran over by a reindeer. Yeah. Okay, good song. Yeah, Christmas personages. Where would our culture be? Where would our traditions be without them? Uh, Matthew started his Christmas story as well with a long list of names. And if you read through his long list of names, many of them you don't recognize, you can't pronounce. Um, some of them you can't pronounce, even understand the story, but there's no way in the world you'd associate it with Christmas. Well, Matthew started his Christmas story with the genealogy. A couple of reasons. One is in our culture, we mentioned last week, that you are important based on your socioeconomics, based on your job, the size of your office, the car you drive, your home, where you went to school, how much schooling you got, all of those kind of things. That determines your importance in our culture. But in this culture, oh no, you were important based on your lineage. It was all about what line you were from. If you had all this other stuff, but you weren't from the right line, you just did not garner the, the, the respect that you would have, even if you didn't have this stuff, but you were from the right line. And, and Matthew's talking to a very Jewish audience. And the, these folk are, are based on the Old Testament looking for a Messiah. A Messiah that they realize is from the, the line of David. A lot of Jewish folk, not from the line of David, but the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, has to be there. There's just some text, and there's a lot of them, but let's go through just a couple of them. 
Second Samuel, this is the Davidic covenant. God's talking to David. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 200 years later, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. His reign on David, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. I will, play, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. The folk were looking for a Messiah from the line of David. This is why Matthew says... A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He wants to drive home. You guys who are looking for a Messiah from the line of David. Jesus is from the line of David. And immediately these folk would say, okay, tell me more. Well, that's exactly what Matthew's going to do. So Matthew's trying to show these folk that Jesus is from the right line. But he's got a secondary reason. Because like we mentioned last week, even today... In, in Orthodox Judaism, you do not incorporate women in the genealogy. Your, your importance is derived from the man's line, not from the woman's line. But Matthew goes against culture and incorporates five different women in the line. And, and you need to know he doesn't incorporate all the women that could be there. No, no, no. He, he's very intentional about he, who he chooses to put in this, this genealogy. And the gals he chooses are like the black sheep of the family. And so you have to ask yourself, Matthew, what in the world are you doing? And so he goes on. He says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We talked about her last week. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, the the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, not Solomon, it's important. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. We've got two gals listed here. We're going to look at both of them this morning in a, not a, a superficial way, but, but uh, really a flyover way. And again, what we want to ask ourselves is why, Matthew, are you associating these gals with the Christmas story? Why are you putting them in the genealogy? So if you've got your Bibles, I'm trusting you do, if you'll look with me to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. As you turn, let me give you the background. Uh, Moses, 40 years earlier, had gotten the guys out of, the, the Israelites out of Egypt Ten plagues, you know the story, and massive supernatural power of God, and, and Egypt was, was broken, and, and Israel was, was delivered, and the Red Sea, and Israel threw it, and the Egyptians tried to get through it, and it collapsed on them, drowned them all. Major miracles. 
Then they spent 40 years in the Sinai Peninsula in the desert, just kind of wandering around and, and manna every you know, day, three meals a day for 40 years. When they could go down that road, that'd be a wild deal, wouldn't it? Then they decide it's time. It's, they, they, they put in the 40 years. They come up on the east side of the Jordan River. They cross the Jordan. I mean, they had some skirmishes with some kings on the east side of the, the Jordan. They knocked them out. They cross the Jordan River at flood stage. It's a miracle. They set up camp at a place called Gilgal. It was going to be their headquarters for their entire campaign of the Holy Land. And then the very first city that they come against is Jericho, the famous impregnable fortress Jericho. At that time, it would have been known as the most famous, the largest, most powerful city in the, in the Holy Land. Now, if I'm God, I'm thinking let's start small and build our way up, you know, build their confidence and stuff. But oh no, God doesn't start with the biggest, the most powerful city there is. And so Joshua, Moses is now gone, Joshua's in charge. He sends a couple of spies into Jericho, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. They went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. You say, oh, a prostitute. My goodness, I thought last week was a steamy thing. Here we go again. Now, this is maybe as scandalous, but definitely not as graphic, so we're all right. Uh, Rahab, that's... Talk about Rahab for just a second. The little we know of her, she was a Canaanite. She would have worshipped Baal or Baal. Uh, she was from Jericho. How old is she? I don't know. 20 years old, whatever. Uh, she had a, a unique vocation. Hebrew gives you two different words for, for a prostitute. One is a, a shrine prostitute. You know, it's often in the pagan uh, religious rituals. Immorality is involved. And so you've got uh, those scales. But then they've got the more secular version, the, the streetwalker type person. And this, is, this was the word they used for Rahab. Keeping in mind, the gals did not have a whole lot of opportunity here. Um, you were probably, if you were a single gal, you were in a lot of trouble, in all honesty, financially. And so Rahab takes the only trump card that she's ever been given. Ancient rabbinical tradition says that Rahab was one of the four most beautiful women in the ancient world. And so she plays that trump card to her benefit the best she can. Now, you ask yourself, why in the world did the spies, what are they doing? Jewish warrior guys, what are they doing in the house of a prostitute? Hey, let's talk about that a little bit. Your suspicions should rise on that one, shouldn't they? Here's my guess. And I will, I'll show you why I think this in a second. Joshua sends these Israeli guys into uh, Jericho. Now, they probably think they can get in there in a stealthy sort of way. Gates open, Jericho one morning, they kind of walk in. And they're looking around and they're checking stuff out. But what they don't know is Homeland Security in Jericho is as a red. I mean, they, they called in their police and their guards and their army and everybody else and said, they said, I don't have to tell you guys what the Israelites did to Egypt 40 years ago and what they did to the kings of the, on the, in the east of the Jordan just recently. And we understand they are in our land, not camped far from us right now. You better be, we better be watching for them. And so somehow these two Israeli guys are spied in the streets and the alarms get off and I go off. I believe there's a pursuit that happens and they serendipitously dart into the home of Rahab. Now, this is why I hold to that. Because when they get in Rahab's house, she hides them first, asks questions second. Now, if they were just knocking on the door, just want to hang out for a while, I'm guessing she's going to ask some questions on the front end. But there's some urgency here for her to hide them. So she gets them up on her roof. There's, there's this flax drying out. She puts them underneath the flax. And as soon as they're there, she hears this 
Hey, Rahab, open the door. And, and Rahab is suddenly at, at a major crossroads. It's kind of an unfair situation for Rahab. She wasn't asking for this at all. But, but, but she opens the door, and you've got to appreciate her situation. Standing a foot from her. A couple of guards representing her people in Jericho and, and, and uh, Baal. A couple of guards representing her old way of life. And they're saying, listen, Rahab, you know what these guys did. They're evil folk. I understand that you might know their whereabouts. Let us know. We don't want them doing to us what they've done to everybody else. And, and Rahab's looking at these guys, but she knows there's a couple guys up on her roof who represent Yahweh, God, and the covenant people of Israel. And she is forced to make a, a very very uh, critical decision. Now, many of us, when growing up, you know, you hear the stories of Jesus and be committed and all that. And what do we do? Well, we, we're going to think about it. And we're going to go home and pray about it and talk to our friends and maybe do some research. Well, Rahab didn't have time to do any of that stuff. She had to make, there's, there's Baal this way. There's Yahweh over here. Who are you choosing, Rahab? Give us, give us your answer right now. She's got to make the call right now. And so listen to, to, to what happened. She made, she made up a, a wild story, by the way. And she told the guys, uh, listen, they were here, uh, but I didn't know what they were about. And they left. Yeah, they left. And uh, go after them. Maybe you'll catch them. That's her, that's her story. We don't want to necessarily start trying to discuss the ethics of what she said. Important discussion. Not for right now, because if we go down that road, we will miss the, the, the incredible spiritual seriousness of what's going on. Verse 8 it says, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, by the word, see that, that Lord, if you see it in your Bible, it's like all capitals, but a smaller font. That's because that's the word for Yahweh. That is the personal name for God, covenant name. Usually folk will use that name if they are on a first name basis with God, kind of. I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, that's an incredible confession because... Typical pagan understanding is there's many, many gods in the heavens. There's tons of gods. And down here, there's a ton of gods as well. And they're hanging out in different geographical locations. Yes, they would say there's Yahweh. He's hanging out over there. And yes, there's, uh, there's, there's going to be Chemish. And he's down in Moab. And yes, there's gods all over. We understand that. But see, our God right here is, is Baal. That's what she's understanding. That's what she was taught her whole life. But what does she say? She says, your God, Yahweh, is God in heaven. That your God is God below. That's it. That's, that's radical, radical theological thinking for, for anybody at this point, especially this pagan Canaanite gal. But she gets it. She understands that Yahweh alone is God. She goes there. Now, what happens here? What's happened here? If we were to put New Testament terminology on it, I would say Rahab became a Christian. Right here, uh, Hebrews 11, 
The author of Hebrews is looking in his Old Testament for top 17 stories of faith. Uh, this whole 17 stories, only two gals are mentioned. Really, only one as an example of faith. Guess who? Not Esther. It's not Abigail. No, the author says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab. She, you know, this, is, this is what? Uh, 1,000 years later, she's never able to shake this, this title. The prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. James says the same kind of thing when he says in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? So Rahab says, my loyalties are going to be behind Yahweh, the people of Israel, knowing good and well that what she's doing here, if she's caught, I mean, this is like a, a baiting espionage thing. She's in all kinds of trouble. But she throws in her, her lot, not with God because it's convenient, because it's nice, because it's true. And so, so she makes a deal with the spies. Listen, when you guys come and take us out, and I understand it's probably going to happen, will you take care of me? And so they say, yeah, you've taken care of us. We'll take care of you. And so in chapter 6 of Joshua, verse 25, it says, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Joshua had sent his spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. By the way, just a sub-point, don't anyone tell you that Scripture was written hundreds of years after it actually happened. Right here, this was written while Rahab was still living. Uh, she lived there to this day. She assimilated into the nation of Israel, kind of, uh, we can go over different things where she's still kind of put off, set off. She didn't have Jewish blood in her. Uh, she had been a prostitute among us. If someone comes in and they have that kind of a reputation, they had a real rough background, and they had, we're going to be just a little bit nervous. You can bet the people of Israel just a little bit nervous of, of, of Rahab. Well, Rahab, though, one day as time goes on, she's just, I don't know, she's walking around, and, and this guy named Salmon sees her. And strikes up a conversation and walks her home after Tabernacle. And they hang out at Epstein's Grill and they have coffee. And in time, they get married. And they have a little boy. And his name is Boaz. Okay. Now, stop that story for just a second. I'm going to start another one and the two are going to intersect in a second. But understand what's going on there. You've got uh, Rahab, her husband Sam, and their little boy Boaz. They're hanging out, by the way, that's Bethlehem, Ephrathos, where they're they're hanging out. Several years later, a Jewish man named Elimelech, a Jewish woman named Naomi, uh, famine hits Israel. Nothing to eat. They're in trouble. But they hear that down in Moab, southeast corner, there is uh, food, and they can make a living, and life can be great. So they, they head off to Moab. They got a couple of boys, Malon and Chilion, and they get down to Moab and their boys start to grow up and the boys need, need wives. And they look around and there's no good Jewish women and hanging out in Moab. You know, their God there is Chemish. It was not the place you were supposed to be, but they were there all the same. And so what they do is they find nice Moabitess girls for their boys, Ruth and Orpah. Well, well, tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. And then tragedy strikes again. And the two boys, Malon and Chilion, die. And there's Naomi and her two widow daughter-in-laws. And Naomi recognizes that, that the land is not going to be nice. 
to three widows. We are in all kind of trouble, girls. And so she's got a plan. I'm going to go back home. I got some support. I got some relatives back home in Israel. You, on the other hand, what you need to do is hang out here in in Moab. And, you, you know, best chance for you of getting a husband and stuff is here in Moab. So I just hang out here. Uh, and they push back. Oh, we love you. We're going to go with you, Naomi. And she, she, but see, Naomi knows something they don't know. She knows that it's like almost illegal to be a Moabite in the nation of Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 23 says, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. Naomi knows the Moabites are on record for being a public enemy of Israel. And the scripture's never going to advocate racism or, or prejudice. But you got to know, fallen folk, what do they do with something like this? It's almost a license for prejudice, isn't it? It's a license for, for, for hurting or maybe worse. And, and Naomi knows, you come home, not only, I mean, let's just say you stay alive in that venture. There's no way in the world someone's going to marry you. I mean, you're not going to have any children because their heir can't be involved. It's, it's just not going to work. And so she pushes back. But they say, we're in Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now, Ruth, got to get what's going on with her. She's got the exact same situation that, that Rahab had. She had to make a decision. She was forced. There goes her, her sister-in-law. Represents her gods, Chemish, the Moabites, their people. Maybe represents her, her future. And there goes Naomi walking the other direction represents the people of Israel and Yahweh. And, and don't miss this. If, if Ruth decides to not make a decision, I'm just going to think about this for a while. Naomi's still walking away. She will still be in Moab. You cannot not make a decision. If you choose to not make a decision, you stay in Moab. And so, so, so Ruth looks over the situation. And she's forced to make a call here. And she says this in verse 16. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you. Or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, that's a covenant name, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Now, I know this text is often used at weddings. Maybe it's used at your wedding. It's a great text. But it's not a wedding text, right? Context doesn't, doesn't give you that. And she's got a great commitment to uh, Naomi here. But most significantly, she's got a commitment to Naomi's God. Notice what she says. That where you die, I'm going to die. And that's where I'll be buried. Now, think, remember, remember Joseph is in Egypt. And just before he dies in Egypt, what's, what's the command he gives to his, his people after him, his ancestors? He said, when you, God delivers you from this place, take my bones with you. You don't stay buried in the land of, of, of a foreign God. 
Remember when, when, when uh, Jacob is down in Egypt and he dies, what happens? They, they have a caravan all the way back to Canaan to bury him. Because you don't be buried, you're not to be buried in the land of a foreign God. And what is she saying here? I'm supposed to be buried in that land that represents Yahweh, the God's covenant people. Your people will be my people. Can I get in on that? Now, that was a ma- that's a major job, and it's not going to be easy for her because she's an accursed Moabite. That's not going to work out real easy. But they go back. And they, they get back to Israel, and they need to do something to eat. you got a couple of widows, and they're trying to figure out how we're going to get some food. And, and Naomi's got to, of course, explain, no doubt, to, to Ruth the way the welfare system in Israel works. And the way the welfare system works is when these guys start harvesting their crops, you can get behind them and follow them. They can't go over their crops twice. And you follow them, and you can take whatever you can take, and, and that's free game. That's, that's their welfare system. And so one day she figures, we're getting hungry. I've got to get out there. And she goes out, and she, she picks a field. I'm going to take that one. It looks good. And she gets in. It just happens to be the field of a guy named Boaz, uh, Rahab's boy. And so she gets in this field, and she's walking behind all the guys, and she's picking up what she can get. And lo and behold, Boaz comes to check on his field. And he, he notices Ruth, verse chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? You know, I've often thought when I would read this that Ruth must be quite a looker, huh? And Boaz walks in there, you know, and there beholds this gorgeous gal in his field. He's going, Wow, holy moly, where'd that girl come from? Oh, man, hey, give me the story on her. But that's, that's not, maybe that's just my perverted mind thinking. That's, I'm sure y'all are thinking that's not what he was thinking. No, it's, it's not, actually. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and gleam in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. This is Boaz. You got to understand. I'm a cursed Moabite. Why are you being kind to me? Look what he says. Because you look so nice. No, that's not what he says. Verse 11. He says, because I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He recognizes her faith. And think about Boaz for a minute. Who is his mom? I'm guessing as he grew up, he heard the stories of his mom. He knew what she did back in Jericho. He knew what, what, what she did for a living. He knew when she came into to Israel, uh, perhaps some of the prejudice that she received, perhaps some of the uh, accusations, some of the persecution that she endured on a regular basis because she was from the outside. See, she did not have Jewish blood. Boaz had some of that blood in her, in him. But he knew from his mom that she didn't have that bloodline. But my goodness, she had an incredible faith. Oh, my goodness, she loved Yahweh. And one day he sees in his field this, 
this foreigner girl, this girl he knows is cursed. This girl who's, who's just standing there with a big sign on her back, persecute me. And he knows this girl is going to be eaten alive here. What in the world is she doing here? She's going to get killed. And so he steps in and says, I've got to protect her. Because he heard of her faith. And he knows it's not a bloodline thing. It's a faith thing. And so, so he, he seeks to protect her. Well, what happens is, is uh, read the story. It's a great story. But Ruth and Boaz get to know each other a little bit better. Then one night, um, Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz. Let me tell you why she did. Because in the Israeli law system, they had a, a kinsman redeemer clause, basically. And what that means, it can be played out in a lot of different ways. But if something, if you're in need, you can go to your next relative and you can ask them to help you in your need. Uh, For example, your land. Land was not just your land. Land belonged to your father, your grandfather, great grandfather. It was all the way back to Joshua. Your your, your land is supposed to go to your son and his son and his son. It stays in the family. But... If perchance you're, you're hungry, you're starving, you're in debt, you've got problems, and you've got to sell it outside the family line, well, you can do that. But then what you can do is you can go to your kinsman redeemer person. You can say, listen, I lost my, my land. Can you help me out? And the kinsman redeemer person can go, and they have to offer a fair price. But if they offer a fair price, the other person has to sell. And so Ruth one night comes to Boaz and says, Boaz, listen, uh, we, Naomi and I were talking and you just happen to be a very close relative. And this land that Naomi had, well, she passed it down to my, my husband. But he was killed, and so really it's mine, but we lost it. So would you redeem it for me? But you need to understand, since I'm a widow, it's kind of a package deal. You get me too. And so Boaz says, my goodness, this is fantastic. And so he, he goes for it, and they got a little few snags they got to work out. They work those out, and they get married. Then in chapter 4. 4.11 says, then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Boaz and Ruth uh, have a baby in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. His name is Obed. When Obed grew up, he got married. He and his wife had a baby in Bethlehem, Ephrathah named Jesse. When Jesse grew up, he got married, and he and his wife had a baby in Bethlehem, Ephrathah named David, who would become King David. 1,200 years later, King David's great-grandson plus was born in Bethlehem, Africa, named Jesus. Now you stop. You say, okay, Matthew. Got the stories. Interesting. Why you got them in here again? At least a couple applications. One is this. I believe it's, it's there to show us that we cannot be writing on lineage. If you are, please listen to me, if you are a second generation Christian, maybe you're a student in here today, this, please listen, this is real important. Because it's so easy. You kind of grew up in the church and you grew up doing church things because that's great. That's what your family did. That's a huge heritage, fantastic. But there comes a day 
When you've got to be at a crossroads, maybe like Rahab or Ruth, where you say that was wonderful, that was fantastic, but you know what? This is going to be my faith now. I am going to surrender my life to Christ. So let me ask you if you're a second generation Christian or if you're a student or child in here. I don't want to know if you accepted Jesus when you were four right now. I don't want to know if you go to church, your family has family devotions. But right where you sit, would you say right now, I am following after Jesus. I love him. I'm devoted to him. I know him by his personal name. I'm there. My loyalties are in Jesus' camp. Would you say that? If you can't say that, I'm not about to tell you you're not a believer. But I will say, biblically, you don't have a whole lot of evidence. I wouldn't be putting a lot of security there. Where are you at today? And you know what? This, this might just be your Rahab day, your Ruth day. You might have to say, today I'm at the crossroads. And I need to choose today. Am I going the, the, the Orpah route? Am I going to go back to Chemish, the people of the land, where, where it might be more convenient and best for my, my future? Or am I going to throw in my hat and loyalties to, to Jesus? And I, I, even if it's going to be hard, even if in this world I might be a cursed person, I'm following him. Not because it's more convenient or comfortable, because it's true. That's at least one application. A second application, I think. As Matthew, again, is writing to these prideful, spiritually prideful Judaites who are, are, remember, the Moabites are cursed. Canaanites are cursed. And, and, and Matthew's telling them, you guys, remember how your line started, you Judaites. It started through an incestuous relationship built in deception with a Canaanite woman. That's, that's it's your mom. And you've got also in your bloodstream a Canaanite Harlot, she's in your DNA. And you have in your DNA a cursed Moabite in your DNA. Don't start thinking that that you're so pure and you're so righteous and you're so on top of things. You need to know that the reason of Christmas is that Jesus didn't just come for us in here. He came for outside. When we were yet sinners, right, Christ died for us he didn't wait till we were good and we had our acts together and we had everything straightened out so let me ask you do you have any rahab folk in your life if you come across rahab folk when they brush shoulders with you what do they walk away feeling now you say well i'm not responsible for their feeling well maybe maybe not they walk away feeling judged and ridiculed and uh, neglected and this is a fine line i understand it causes discernment huge here there's a difference between acceptance and approval. I, I know that uh, Tony Campola talks about when he was uh, speaking in, in Honolulu one time, got to Honolulu and all the jet stuff because he came from from Philly. So uh, a lot of hours off, wakes up at three in the morning and he's famished. And so he goes out looking for something to eat. And all the places are closed, of course, but he finds a dingy place in a really bad part of town. But he goes, gets something, sits down at this really uh, gross counter place and all the all the the restaurant really had was a counter with stools and he sits down he has coffee a cup of uh, a cup of coffee and donut about 3:30 in walk 10 prostitutes streetwalkers and they're done with their night's work and they just kind of sit down and they're smoking and they're talking loud and they're talking trash and everything else and he's sitting there stoning he's sitting there drinking his coffee thinking i got to get out of here in a hurry and all of a sudden the gal next to him turns to her friend she says hey tomorrow's my birthday i'm turning 39 tomorrow and her friend says so what? 
You, you want like maybe I should throw you a party? You want like a cake for me or something? She says, the other girl says, no, no, don't, you don't have to be mean to me. I'm just telling you, it's my birthday. I never had a birthday party in my life. I don't expect one now. I'm just telling you. Well, that triggers something in Campola's mind. So he waits until the girls leave. And he calls the guy behind the counter. He says, hey, hey, Harry, these girls come in every night? Harry said, oh, yeah, like clockwork, 3.30. They're always in. He said, this girl next to me, she in every night? He said, oh, yeah, that's Agnes. Yeah, she said, why do you, why, why do you care? He said, I just heard Agnes say that tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we throw her a birthday party? Harry gets this big smile on his face. He said, hey, that's a great idea. So he calls his wife in and says, hey, Mabel, this guy here wants to throw Agnes a birthday party. And she says, oh, mister, that's beautiful. Uh, I know what she does for a living. I know, but she's really a sweet girl. She's got a past like you wouldn't believe. And so they make their plans, and Harry's going to do the cake. And so at 2.30 the next morning, uh, Tony Campola shows up with all these decorations. he got a Kmart or whatever, and so he's hanging this stuff all over. He decks out this little diner. Word got out on the street that they were throwing a party for Agnes. And so about 3.15, uh, like every hooker in Honolulu is piling in this place. You know, it's just packed wall-to-wall hookers, and they're in there. And they're all ready. And so at 3.30, when Agnes comes in with their friends, they all scream, Happy birthday, Agnes! And you know, they're cheering. And the way Tony tells the story, he says she's just dumbfounded. She stops. And then when Harry brings out the cake, they blow out the candles. Agnes, she, she just starts sobbing. And she can't blow out the candles. So, so Harry blows out the candles and gives her the cake. And she's got the cake. And he gives her a knife. and says, Okay, cut up the cake, Agnes. Let's cut the cake. And so she's just holding this thing, uh, looks over at Campola and says, Mister, can I, like, not cut the cake right now? Can I just, can I just hang on to it for a little bit? I want to show it to my, my mom. I only live two, two doors down. Can I go show it to my mom? He said, well, sure, Agnes. I mean, it's your cake. Do what you, you want to do. So she just heads out the door with the cake. And all the other gals in there are kind of stopping. It's quiet. They're kind of looking at him. And so he says, uh, well, uh, let's pray. And so <laughs> I can picture this in my mind. Well, what do they do? Say no. So, okay. So, uh, all right. So he starts praying. And he says, I prayed for Agnes. And I prayed that any healing that needed to be done in her life, God would do it. And God would protect her. And God would reveal himself to her. He said, when he got done, amen. Harry kind of looked over the the counter, and he's kind of agitated, said, hey, buddy, you told me you was a a sociology professor. You're a preacher. What kind of church do you preach at? And Campola said, I preach at the kind of church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And, 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 And Harry backed up. He said, nah, you don't. Nah, you don't. See, that kind of church don't exist. Because if it did, I'd go there. Now, I'm not so sure that that needs to be in our vision statement. That's what the kind of church we're going to be about. However, you don't have to say amen too loud to that one. However, the spirit of that certainly should be, shouldn't it? That when we bounce up against people who are very far, who are on the outside looking in, Perhaps the only idea they have of Christianity is us. My goodness, may they not face judgment 
or ridicule or, or, or neglect. But instead, might they, they, they somehow know the love of Christ and we do for them what Jesus did for them in this Matthew parties. And that's the goal. Well, Rahab and Ruth, unlikely faces of Christmas. But my goodness, they certainly tell the story a lot clearer than the faces of Santa Claus and Rudolph and Scrooge. And I would, I would encourage myself and y'all this, this, this season as we go through and we think of any Rahabs we might know. That, that, that we remember the reason why Jesus came. That we reflect that to them in his name.